turn with me, if you will, in your Bibles to Psalm 85. If you're using the Pew Bible in front of you, that's page 493. Before reading from the Word of the Lord, let's go to our God in prayer together. Our great triune God, Father, Son, Spirit, Lord of glory, of truth, of righteousness, holiness, we long to know you more. We long to grow to understand the gospel of sovereign grace more and more and ask that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear the wonder of the unchanging truth of your word this morning. In the name of Christ, our Lord, we pray. Amen. Stand with me, if you will, for the reading of God's word. To the choir master, psalm of the sons of Korah, Lord, you are favorable to your land. You restored the fortunes of Jacob. You forgave the iniquity of your people. You covered all their sin. You withdrew all your wrath. You turned from your hot anger. Restore us again, O God of our salvation, and put away your indignation toward us. Will you be angry with us forever? Will you prolong your anger to all generations? Will you not revive us again that your people may rejoice in you? Show us your steadfast love, O Lord, and grant us your salvation. Let me hear what God the Lord will speak, for he will speak peace to his people, to his saints. But let them not turn back to folly. Surely his salvation is near to those who fear him, that glory may dwell in our land. Steadfast love and faithfulness meet. Righteousness and peace kiss each other. Faithfulness springs up from the ground. And righteousness looks down from the sky. Yes, the Lord will give what is good, and our land will yield its increase. Righteousness will go before him and make his footsteps away. The word of our God, you may be seated. Now, last week we looked together at Psalm 84, a psalm of praise of the sons of Korah. This morning we come to a psalm of lament of the sons of Korah. Now I think having a psalm of praise right alongside a psalm of lament, perhaps even composed by some of the same human authors, though of course under divine inspiration, teaches us a great deal about how to live the Christian life. Things might change on our end very rapidly and very significantly, and yet the Lord remains immovable as the faithful and true one. And in his kindness, he meets us wherever we are. In seasons of great joy, when praise readily flows from our lips, or even seasons of sorrow, in which we may struggle to praise the name of the Lord. Our God is faithful through it all, as he guides and instructs all of our earthly days. John Calvin put it very memorably in speaking about the Psalms, that the Psalms are an anatomy of every part of the soul, that there's not a human emotion that we experience that is not addressed in some way in this book of Psalms. And for all of the varied circumstances that the Psalms speak to, underlying all of them, every single Psalm, almost like a thread binding the Psalter together, is a heartfelt disposition of praise in which every Psalm leads us to a deeper and richer knowledge of the God to whom we serve, the God to whom we belong. 
And so a psalm of lament and a psalm of praise are not opposed to one another, but both lead us tenderly to learn how to praise the Lord. Well, it's been said that you cannot wait for a trial to come in your life and then decide that it's time to get serious about pursuing the Lord. You don't wait for the hurricane to bear down upon you, losing all power, and then decide to go get water and batteries when all the stores are closed. You don't wait for hardship to come and then get serious about your walk with the Lord. Instead, the time to prepare for the inevitability of suffering is now. And this is where I think the Psalms of Lament can be of great help to us to prepare us, to prepare us in our thinking, to orient our hearts, and to direct our wills to be submissive to the Lord our God so that we are prepared to respond in a God-honoring and a Christ-exalting manner that gives glory to the triune God to whom we belong. So let's think this morning about how this psalm can help to prepare us for the trials that will come in our lives, perhaps trials that will come in this year, 2024, or trials that will most certainly come down the road. And let's think as well about how this psalm might minister to us even if we are in the midst of great trial and hardship. So let's notice first how the psalmist begins by reflecting upon the Lord's past dealings with his covenant people. Let's read again verses 1 through 3. Lord, you were favorable to your land. You restored the fortunes of Jacob. You forgave the iniquity of your people. You covered all their sin. You withdrew all your wrath. You turned from your hot anger. And so here the psalmist is confessing his faith. And it's really a confession in which he acknowledges and looks to what the Lord has done for his people in the past. So this is our first point this morning, confessing the Lord's kindness from verses 1 through 3. Now, there are different types of laments that we find in the Psalter. There are the more familiar individual laments in which the psalmist is facing some hardship or trial. Maybe it's in, in his outward circumstances persecution, mockery, attack from an enemy who wants to destroy him, even betrayal from one who is close to him. Maybe it's physical sufferings that he's enduring, some sort of malady, hardship, physical struggle and weakness, or something that is inward, a struggle of the heart in which his conscience weighs him down. He struggles to trust in the Lord because of the great hardship that he is enduring. Or, of course, it's a combination of these three at times. These are all occasions for those individual laments. And then there are what we could call communal laments, like Psalm 85, in which the psalmist is writing on behalf of all of the people of God. There is some weighty trial or significant hardship that all of God's people are experiencing together. And those communal laments speak to these things, helping to guide and instruct the people as they experience this hardship together. Now, with this particular psalm, we can't be certain as to when it was composed in the historical setting in which it was written. But we know from the history of Israel that God brought his people through a great number of hardships and trials on all sorts of various occasions. You might think of the 400 years of slavery when the Israelites were held in Egypt and the Lord works his covenant promises to deliver them and bring them to the land of promise. 
You might think of the period of the judges in which the people fail to worship the Lord and he gives them over to those other conquering nations. And yet the Lord is good in his mercy to raise up a deliverer from among them. You might think of the Babylonian exile in which the Lord God was pleased to bring the people back to the land of promise. Though things are not as full and glorious as they had hoped for, as they long for greater restoration. And you can see how Psalm 85, though we don't know again for certain, could fit that historical setting in particular. Now, some of those seasons of hardship in the lives of the nation of Israel were things that came because, frankly, they brought those things upon themselves. They were unfaithful to the Lord. They gave their allegiance to other false gods from the pagan nations around them or were guilty of some form of syncretism, mixing true worship with the false worship around. Now, regardless of when this psalm was written, it seems as though something is missing from their expectations, from their experience. Things are not quite right as he longs for the Lord's presence to be made manifest among them. And so the psalmist here at the beginning takes time to reflect upon how the Lord has been kind and good to his people in the past. And I think there's a great lesson for us to learn here right off the bat from verses 1 through 3. And that is for us in our own lives to take time to dwell upon the Lord's goodness and kindness to you. Sometimes circumstances can feel so overwhelming for us that we have a hard time seeing anything else except that immediate hardship and difficulty. Almost like a dense fog that falls upon us, we have difficulty seeing anything else other than those immediate troubles. But the psalmist teaches us the value of reflecting upon the Lord's covenantal kindness and graciousness toward his people. And it is the Lord's past kindness that nurtures his present comfort and feeds his future hope. You see, the psalmist knows that the Lord is sovereign and good. This is a bedrock foundational truth for him. Someone in speaking about the Psalms of Lament has remarked that if you don't believe that God is sovereign and merciful, then there is no cause for lament. If God is not sovereign, if he is not absolutely in control of everything that happens in this world, then we would expect things to go off the rails in our lives and in the world around us. And if he is not merciful, then we could not trust him with the cries of our hearts. And so laments are heartfelt expressions out of confusion or sorrow because we believe wholeheartedly in the sovereignty of God and in the goodness of our Lord. We might say that a lament is nothing more than bringing God there into the very center of our lives taking hardship to the Lord, being reminded of his unchanging nature, and responding in trust because of who he is. But more specifically, what are some of the things that the psalmist is reflecting upon from the past? Well, he's remembering, notice, when the Lord restored the fortunes of his people. Now, this is not so much about material prosperity as it is restoration to the land of promise, a gift of their inheritance as covenant people. The Lord has shown his favor in his abundant provision, not only of giving them this land, but providing the needed rains from above and fertility from crops and peace from those that are around them. The Lord worked in the hearts 
of the people to turn them from waywardness to give their allegiance in a renewed manner to the Lord God. He reflects as well upon the Lord's forgiveness of iniquity, as we see there in verse 2. Now, forgiveness here has the connotation of lifting or taking away, taking away our guilt and, and sin and shame, removing our sins as far as the east is from the west, as we oftentimes hear in our assurance of pardon from Psalm 103. He then goes on to reflect upon the Lord's kindness to cover sin, that is to conceal or hide from sight that which deserves condemnation. And finally, he reflects upon the Lord's removal of wrath as his justice was met. So these, you see, are all things the Lord has done for his people. And each one of these things are very loaded theological concepts. Reconciliation, being made right with God. Expiation, removal of guilt and the pollution that comes because of sin. And propitiation, the satisfaction of of divine wrath and favor with God. And all of these things, of course, find their ultimate fulfillment, not in some provisional sacrifice of old, but they find their fulfillment in the work of our Savior. Listen to Old Testament scholar Michael Morales. He writes, because Jesus suffered as our substitute, sinners can find rest for their souls. The impending thunderstorm of divine judgment that ever threatens us, overshadowing our vain attempts at happiness, cannot be dispelled by wishful thinking or misguided assertions. A Christian basks securely in the warm rays of the Father's favor, only because that storm of judgment has already broken in the full measure of its fury on the crucified Son of God. His shed blood cleanses us from our sins, removing our guilt from the sight of God. His wholehearted, law-keeping life offered up to God through the cross, even as he bore our penalty, rises to heaven as a pleasing aroma. And we boast in nothing at all except in the one who loved us and gave himself for us as a fragrant offering to God. And that brings us to the next section of the psalm in verses 4 through 7 in which the psalmist draws comfort for the present because of the Lord's past faithfulness as he cries to the Lord for salvation. And so this is our second point this morning, which is a prayer to the Lord for renewal. Now let's read that prayer for renewal again, starting in verse 4. Restore us again, O God of our salvation, and put away your indignation toward us. Will you be angry with us forever? Will you prolong your anger to all generations? Will you not revive us again, that your people may rejoice in you? Show us your steadfast love, O Lord, and grant us your salvation. Now notice first that this prayer for renewal is based upon the conviction that the Lord does not change. If the Lord has done what he has done for his people, there in verses 1 through 3, then we can have confidence that he will do the same, and he will be the same for us. In Terry Johnson's wonderful book, The Identity and Attributes of God, that some of the men are working through together on Friday mornings, he talks about the immutability of God or the unchangeableness of God's nature. 
One of the great comforts for the Christian is that we belong to a God who does not change. His character does not change. He does not fade over time. He does not become more crotchety like me as time goes on. He does not grow in holiness. He does not increase in righteousness. He does not mature in grace and love, for he is infinite and eternal in all of these ways. And not only his character, but his truth does not change. If he says something, it is forever true. He does not change his mind. He does not grow in knowledge, nor does something ever slip his mind. But his word and his promises are fixed. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever, as we read in Isaiah 40. And further, the Lord's ways do not change. He has been forgiving, gracious, and kind to his people in the past, and he will continue to do so in the present. And his purposes do not change. My counsel will stand, says the Lord, and he will most certainly accomplish that which he has determined. What comfort that nothing takes our God by surprise. Johnson writes, the immutability of God is an anchor for us in a changing world. And so this, you see, is the solid foundation that gives the psalmist hope. This is the solid foundation that he wants the people of Israel to understand. And this is the solid foundation that gives us hope and fuels the content of our own prayers to the Lord. And just think for a moment of the value in our own lives of reflecting upon what the Lord has done for us whether it's your own reading of Scripture as you're reminding yourself of God's wonderful work throughout redemptive history and His faithfulness to His children, whether it's thinking more immediately in your own life, considering how the Lord has provided for you and protected you and guided your steps, watching over you, giving you so many undeserved blessings. It can do our souls good to prayerfully reflect upon the Lord's kind providence to us. But even more than this, we can reflect upon our ultimate deliverance from captivity to sin and the righteous standing that we have before the living God because of what the Lord Jesus has done for you. Our iniquities are forgiven through His shed blood. Our sins are covered because of what our Savior has done upon the cross. The Lord's wrath has been removed as Christ became that curse for us. And because of that, his anger is turned away. John Calvin wrote that nothing encourages us more effectively to come to the throne of grace than the remembrance of God's former benefits. Now, there are many attributes of the Lord that people are fine with these days, fine confessing his goodness and his love and his kindness and his mercy. No one would argue against those attributes of God. But where you will, of course, find some pushback and great resistance is when you begin talking about the justice of the Lord and his righteousness and his holiness that demands that his wrath and anger be directed toward sinners. Now, the reason that the psalmist has no problem here speaking about the indignation of the Lord, his wrath or his anger, is because he knows that those things are merely manifestations of the holiness of God directed toward sinners who are deserving of divine displeasure. 
And here's the difference we might think about the prayer of the psalmist versus the cry of modern man. Modern man would cry out to God with a clenched fist, how dare you? How could you possibly be angry with us? We don't deserve such hardship. I don't understand why you feel as though you could ever be indignant toward us, with, of course, an indignation toward God. And along with modern man, we might be tempted in our own lives to question the Lord God as well, as though He owes us a certain requisite number of years filled with comfort and ease of life. We may feel vindicated to, dis- to express our own displeasure toward God when things don't go as planned. There are many who want God to dispense good things to them, but have little interest in listening to His Word and seeking to love His ways. But that is not the posture of the psalmist. Instead, his prayer is along the lines of, there is a reason why your anger is directed toward us. You are just and you are righteous in your ways. It is because of our wickedness against you that we are deserving of your wrath and indignation. And the psalmist is not defensive, as though the Lord is withholding something that they deserve. But he asks the Lord to find satisfaction for his wrath and indignation so that his love and salvation might prevail. And this is, we might call this the tension that the psalmist feels that finds its resolution toward the end of the psalm that we'll see in a few moments. Now, this is not to say that there is some conflict within the nature of the Lord as though his righteousness and love are at odds or opposed to one another. This is not to say that the Son of God had to come and compel the Father to love lost sinners as some hold. John Murray speaks to that misconception that God was forced to love us by writing, it is one thing to say that the wrathful God is made loving. That would be entirely false. It is another thing to say that the wrathful God is loving. That is profoundly true. And so his request to the Lord here in verses 4 through 7 can sort of be summed up like this. Restore us. Revive us, O Lord. Work renewal within us. Help us to walk in greater devotion unto you, for you are the one who works salvation, and there is no good apart from you. And the purpose for this request is seen there in verse 6. It's not along the lines of restore us because life is hard. It's not change my circumstances because I don't like them. Or it's not fix those people around me because they're the worst. He's not asking for the Lord's restoration so that life simply becomes easier. But it is so that we may rejoice in you. So that we might give our praise and adoration and worship to you. There is no higher end than this. There is no higher end than the glory of God. There is no higher calling than ascribing praise to His name. There is no larger joy than rejoicing in the God of our salvation. And so, notice the flow of His logic so far from these first two points. You, O Lord, are who you are in your unchanging nature as the covenant-making covenant-keeping God, and you have shown yourself to be faithful and good to your people in the past. 
And so do the same in our own time, O Lord. Restore us. Renew us. Make your salvation and love evidence to us as your wrath and indignation are removed. And notice as we move along how this prayer of the psalmist ends there in verse 7 and how beginning in verse 8 he sort of turns to instruct himself. Now there are many places in the psalms in which the psalmist speaks to that inner man speaking truth to himself. For example, why so downcast, O my soul? Put your trust in God, as we read in Psalm 42. And so this is a way to teach himself how to respond to God because of who the Lord is. Look again at verse 8. Let me hear what God the Lord will speak, for he will speak peace to his people, to his saints, but let them not turn back to folly. Surely his salvation is near to those who fear him, that glory may dwell in our land. You see, the psalmist knows the vital importance of listening to the word of God. Hear him when he speaks. Hear him when he speaks of the wonders of his peace. Hear him in order to guard your heart against returning to your folly. Fear the Lord. Know his salvation by allowing his voice to be the voice that prevails within your mind and heart. Now, much of your life is probably like mine in that you do a lot of talking and very little listening. Now, you don't have to be one of those people who talk incessantly. We might call them external processors. I guess that's a nice way to talk about someone, isn't it? You could be the type of person who doesn't say a whole lot, but you are talking constantly to yourself in that internal monologue listening to that inward voice as though you are the voice of authority in your own life, when instead we need to challenge ourselves to be silent and to listen and hear the Word of God. I don't know if that show Mythbusters is on television any longer. It's this show where there were these scientists, or maybe they were just pseudoscientists, who did all of these differing experiments in the realm of physics to dispel various Uh, misconceptions and so forth about the world in which we live. And I do remember this one experiment that they did on the whole notion of multitasking, the belief that we can do multiple things at once. No matter how confident the various contestants were, they were shown again and again that they simply could not multitask. You cannot talk and listen at the same time. You don't have to be moving your lips to be talking. Again, it could be that inner voice that's telling yourself that everyone else around you is the problem. But you see, the psalmist knows that he and the people of God must be silent and must listen and give attention to the voice of the Lord. And to properly hear, they must quiet even that inner voice. Because the alternative to not listening to God, as he says in verse 8, is a return to a life of folly. Now here the word folly is a very interesting word. It's a loaded word that has also the connotation of stupidity or even self-confidence. And perhaps that is a good way to think of our own foolishness that's bound up within the hearts of each one of us. It really is a fine line, isn't it, between self-confidence and stupidity? Just because you're self-confident and self-assured does not mean that you are not a fool. 
In fact, there's a strong likelihood that our self-confidence is nothing more than our own stupidity. And so we need to silence, again, that inward voice so that we are people living under the Word, being shaped by the Word, listening to God's Word. Even Calvin, who lived 500 years ago, in speaking about the struggles of his people to listen to the Word of God, put it something like this. The task of the congregation is a continuous, lifelong battle against natural, internal rebelliousness, apathy, and arrogance in favor of God's teaching and call. It really is a lifelong battle within our hearts to lay aside our pride, to humble ourselves, to acknowledge that we need to be regularly challenged by the word of the Lord as we look to the power of, spirit, of the Spirit to help us heed that voice of authority. And now we want to be people, of course, who receive the word not just outwardly, but inwardly with submissive hearts and wills. And as we look again at verse 9, we could call verse 9 a wonderfully prophetic word. Salvation is coming in the form of one who comes in glory and dwells in the land. Now, clearly, this is speaking of the Lord Jesus, isn't it? The glory of the eternal God comes and dwells in the land in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. John in his gospel says as much in chapter 1, the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. And that brings us this morning to the last section of the psalm in our fourth point this morning from verses 10 through 13, where we read about the way in which glory comes to dwell among us. Or for our fourth point, we might put it like this the means of restoration. Look again, verse 10. Steadfast love and faithfulness meet. Righteousness and peace kiss each other. Faithfulness springs up from the ground, and righteousness looks down from the sky. Yes, the Lord will give what is good, and our land will yield its increase. Righteousness will go before him and make his footsteps away. Now let's think again about that tension that the psalmist feels between the holiness of God and our rebellion against him. If there is any hope in this life or the life to come, we need God's favor. We need his forgiveness. We need his cleansing. We need his salvation. And yet we can't help but recognize and confess that we are undeserving. Our sin is grievous unto a holy God. We have forsaken his goodness. We have spurned his mercy. And we have given the allegiance of our hearts to another. And so how can we reconcile the great love of God for lost sinners with the righteousness and holiness of his nature? The the medieval theologian Anselm, in his treatise, Why the God-Man?, sought to answer that question, why did the eternal Son of God become man? Was this necessary or was this just one possible alternative among many others that God could have worked to save us from our sin? 
And Anselm rightly concludes that there was no other way for us to be reconciled. God is holy and righteous and just, and he cannot simply ignore our great wickedness against him. And there must be this way, this way of provision that comes only through the atoning work of Jesus. Now, certainly God was under no obligation to save us from our rebellion. He would have remained just, holy, righteous in all of his ways by simply allowing us to perish in our sin. But determining to save us, there was no other way for the wrath of God to be appeased, to be satisfied other than this, through the work of Christ our Lord. And the psalmist, we might say in shadow form, sees the resolution as steadfast love and faithfulness meet, as righteousness and peace kiss each other. And it is the covenant faithfulness of God that he sees. And it's the covenant faithfulness of God in the Lord Jesus that finds its fulfillment. It is the righteousness of God that demands vindication for the violation of his law. And notice how the psalmist here at the end of this psalm really personifies righteousness. That is, he speaks of righteousness as a person, not simply a concept. Verse 11, it is righteousness that looks down from the sky. It is the Lord God who looks down upon the work of his Son, who is glory dwelling among us. And it is righteousness there in verse 13 that surrounds our Savior. It is righteousness that exudes from everything that our Lord thinks and does and says in his earthly ministry. And it's in the redeeming work of our Savior, the righteous and holy one who took the wrath of God upon himself. And as righteousness and peace come together in the Lord Jesus Christ, they, they kiss, as we could say, as the psalmist says here, at the cross of Christ. In the ancient Near Eastern culture, you might greet someone that you are at peace with, with a kiss upon the cheek as a sign of fellowship and care for one another. So this, you see, is a way to capture divine favor with God that is ours through his provision. Peace is found in the Prince of Peace. It's interesting, I think, to note how the psalmist speaks of these things here in verses 12 and 13 as future realities. Though they have not yet happened, they are certainties as we look to the future. Things that are so certain, it's as though they have already been accomplished. Look again, verse 12. Yes, the Lord will give what is good. Our land will yield its increase. Righteousness will go before him and make his footsteps away. And so where the psalmist starts with this longing for the Lord's renewal to be among them, as he looks to the Lord to be the one who provides that which is lacking and is still needed at this point in redemptive history, he knows that God's promises in his covenant are so fixed and so firm that it is a certainty that these things will be accomplished. And since he has redeemed a people for his own, there is a calling that is placed upon us. We have no right to walk according to our own desires. But as a redeemed people, we are charged with the task of following in the righteous footsteps of our righteous one who forged that path for us, lest we stray, lest we return to that former way of life, that 
path of foolishness or folly. Richard Gaffin puts it like this, obedience in all its potential fullness is inseparable from faith. Obedience is an indispensable expression of our faith. If our faith is in the Lord Jesus as the only hope for lost sinners, then it follows that we will long to walk in greater obedience to him, growing in faithfulness to our Lord. As we prepare now this morning to come to the table of the Lord, think of how this psalm really is a great summary of the Christian life. There's an acknowledgement of what we deserve, wrath and judgments. There is a cry to the Lord of mercy, for he has shown himself over and again to be the merciful one. And there's a look to him for salvation, followed by a longing to walk in greater obedience. Ultimately, it is blessing that comes from the Lord through his provision, a provision which comes down from on high, a provision which comes ultimately in the cross of our Savior. As we come to this fellowship meal, it really is a wonderful expression of this promise that we meet our Savior here at his table, drawing present comforts from what he has accomplished for us in the past as we look ahead to the wonderful hope of that glorious day of his return, all because of his shed blood for lost sinners. May the Lord our God enable us to walk in his ways as we look to him for salvation.